We're talking about uh, loving each other, which is part of this threefold purpose that we've been talking about with our church of loving God, loving each other today, and loving the world, uh, which we'll talk about next week, which kind of orientates us as a church to think about who we are and the dimensions of ministry here and the, the, the priorities, I guess, that we have in our life together. Uh, we're going to be back in Acts chapter 2, uh, if you have a Bible. You can turn there, and as you turn there, let me tell you this little story. Some of you, um, many of you might have heard the name uh, Mark Zuckerberg. He was a second-year university student at Harvard in 2003, and uh, Mark had just been dumped by his girlfriend. He was sitting alone one night in his dorm room, feeling sorry for himself, getting intoxicated and blogging. And in a moment of uh, insanity, he decided that he would log in and hack in to the intranet at Harvard University. And Harvard had this very elaborate intranet where students had pictures of themselves, and he hacked into the system and grabbed images of students, and he set up his own little website and put two images of students next to each other and got people to go onto his website and vote on who was the better-looking student. And he called the site FaceMash. And in a couple of days, Harvard shut it down. But in that time, it had generated tens of thousands of visitors. And Mark started to think he was onto something here. And so he set up an authorized uh, social networking site, again, just for Harvard, where students could go on and post a picture of themselves and put personal details and interact with other students. And he called this the Facebook. And after a while, this was so popular that it spread out to other universities in North America. And then in 2006, it spread to anyone who had a valid email address. And today, Facebook is the number one, you know this, the number one social networking site in the world. 350 million people on Facebook, registered users of Facebook. So if Facebook was a country, it would be the third largest country in the world between India and the United States. That's pretty massive. And of those 350 million people, 175 of them check Facebook every single day. How many of you are in that category? Every single day you're on Facebook. How many of you are registered users of Facebook? So, uh, look around. That's amazing. You could just, we could do community like that. You know? It'd be a poor substitute, really, for the real thing. But that's, this is where it's at, right? Facebook. Now, now, what does this tell you about our society? This is the question. What is the proliferation of Facebook and Twitter and Bebo and MySpace? What is, this tell, what is this saying to us about our culture? Doesn't it speak of the fact that there is a desperate need for community? That there is such a... De- within the human heart, I think this reflects a cry for belonging and for some sense of solidarity with other people and some sense of connection and some sense of community. And it's a response, I think, to just increasing social fragmentation you know, a generation ago, a lot of this could be achieved in your neighborhood. There was neighborhood community, uh, where, you know, sitting out on your, on your back porch, and, and, and you would know the people that live either side of you. Today, very few of us know who lives to the left, who lives to the right, but we know these people who may live thousands of miles away because we interact with them on Facebook. And this has taken over as the new way of doing community, as the new way of building solidarity with people. And it reflects, I think, deeply the fact that this is what we are all searching for. This is what we are all longing for. This is why people join Facebook. This is why people join sports clubs and book clubs. 
and, and sit in cafes and join churches and gyms and all kinds of things because we are looking for this type of connection. We're looking for this type of meaningful community. And this type of community is reflected precisely in this passage that we've been looking at in Acts chapter 2. Of all the social groups on planet Earth, this grouping of fellow believers in Jesus Christ should be the place where that longing is met more than any other. This is how God has designed it. So that the community of faith, the community of Christ, would model and would exemplify what the whole world is looking for. So keeping in mind this insatiable longing reflected in things like Facebook for community and for connection and for belonging, let's read again this passage, same passage we read last week in Acts 2, and just see what it says about this desire that each of us have. Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's a really important word in this passage. In the very first verse, in most translations it's translated fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. The word, the Greek word there is koinonia. It's such an important New Testament word. They devoted themselves to koinonia. Literally, it means to participate, to share, to have in common. It comes from the root word, which just simply means common. Not common as in ordinary, but common as in what is in common. Common ground, common room, common space. They devoted themselves to this deep type of community, this type of fellowship. We we maybe think of community, but I don't even know that that word really gets at what koinonia truly is. It's a deep bond of trust and of love and a sense of vulnerability with one another and a willingness to be real with one another. It's this acknowledgement that in some sense, I belong to you. And in some sense, you belong to me. That we, there, is a, there is a giving, a willingness to give ourselves for the other, to participate in each other's lives. Not just to be content with the surface-level pseudo-community where we just talk about stuff that's going on and, and, and TV and the weather and stuff, but, but koinonia goes far, far deeper than that. And I would say that koinonia is what every human heart is seeking. This is not an issue of Christian or non-Christian. It's not an issue of introvert or extrovert. This is what it means to be human, that we have a proclivity towards koinonia. It doesn't mean that you want to be the life of the party. It doesn't mean that you're going to have 120 friends on Facebook. But it means that at a fundamental level, you and I, simply by virtue of being human, we crave this connection. It's in our DNA. We crave that human community, a sense of belonging people that we can belong to. We want a tribe. We want a people, a group that we feel like we're home. People that we feel like know us and we know them, who love us and we love them. 
People whom we can be totally open with, totally real with, totally raw with. Don't you long for that? Just someone that you can just be exactly who you are, no masks, no pretense, and you know they will love you anyway. You know they will accept you anyway. This resonates with our our humanity. And it shouldn't surprise us because we are created in the image of a God who defines koinonia. God himself, you think about the being of God, the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. They exist in what is the perfect community. It's like the perfect life group. Father, Son, and Spirit. From eternity past to eternity future. This incredible self-giving love. God is not the static being who just never changes, never moves, never relates, never feels, never, never does anything. God is this deeply dynamic personality where the Father is constantly giving himself away to the Son and the Spirit. And the Son is constantly giving himself in this beautiful self-giving love to the Spirit and the Father. And the Spirit, some have defined as the bond of love between Father and Son. So there is this reciprocity, this beautiful self-giving love that goes on. The Trinity, the very being of the Godhead, defines this word, koinonia. And then you find, especially if you read the book of 1 John, you find that what this means is that because we are created in the image of this God, we are designed for koinonia with, in the first instance, with God. That we're drawn into this dynamic in some ways. That we're invited to have koinonia with God. And out of that koinonia with God, we're invited to have koinonia with one another. This is the logic of it. So we don't just pursue community because this is the kind of a thing that we do because we're Christians. There is, a, there is a whole flow from the very being of God that infuses our community. And when you get to Acts 2, what the author of Acts wants us to see here is that we are looking at a replica on earth of the dynamic community and connection and koinonia that exists within the person of God. That even though that is mysterious and hard to understand how it could be that Father, Son, and Spirit exist like that, you get to Acts 2 and you get this earthy picture. This is what it means. This is the image of God in community, not just one person, one person. We are the image of God when we pursue that kind of koinonia, when we do the stuff that Diane's talking about, when we love each other and we help each other and we, and we have each other's backs and we inconvenience ourselves for each other, we are pursuing this koinonia and we're, and we're imaging the God that we serve, who himself is constantly giving himself away, pouring himself out. That's what our koinonia is supposed to be. That's what every person on earth is looking for. And it should be nowhere more evident than within the body of Christ. This koinonia, this is the reason that people are joining Facebook in such numbers. They might not articulate it that way. They might not even be able to say koinonia. But that's the reason. Underlyingly, theologically, this is how we understand it. It's a propensity towards community. And the church has got the goods on this stuff. We are the place that defines koinonia because we're in community with the triune God. And the tragedy is that so often that koinonia that we are supposed to be expressing and modeling and and just exemplifying to the world, it's, it's often painstakingly absent in the church. And sadly, a lot of other groups in society do it better than we do. I was reading an article in The Listener recently Uh, It was a story of a guy who's in Narcotics Anonymous. 
you know how you have AA, Al Alcoholics Anonymous, this guy's in Narcotics Anonymous in New Zealand, and he was describing what these meetings are like. You go along to an NA meeting, and as, as I read this, I thought, you know, this is supposed to be what church is like. This is supposed to be what our, what our life together is like. Let me read you just a couple of sentences. He said, the sessions were raw and confessional, but there was a warmth, honesty, no chest poking, no therapy, no hierarchy, drug-free men and women were living out the basic principles of NA, one addict helping another. That's fantastic. That's what we should be, shouldn't it? One addict helping, that's basically our deal, you know, we're all addicted to something, even if it's just ourselves. And this, isn't this what our community here should be, just one addict helping another? Just one beggar trying to show another beggar where he found food? We're all broken people. We're all messed up people. We've just got to start naming our brokenness, being real with our own frailty and just letting each other into it a little bit. Being humble enough just to say, yeah, you can step into my shoes and I can step into yours and let's just try and figure this out together. It does take a good dose of humility. It's to let our guard down that much. And it's not easy. To, I'm not saying our Sunday services should be like this because it's hard to do in a, in a group of people this big, but we've got to find ways. Life groups, smaller groups like Jill was talking about, as well as the flavor of what happens here. That's what koinonia is. This is where it should be found, above all else. And the thing with koinonia is that it's, it's a wonderful concept to talk about, and it's just brutally hard to do. You know, I was talking with some pastors earlier in the week, and one of them said, you know, everyone wants revolution. No one's prepared to do the dishes. That's the problem. You know, we're all, we want the lofty idea. Well, let's go, let's, you know, let's have church, let's have koinonia. But when it comes down to the gritty, the earthy, just the flat-out inconvenience of the whole thing, it's really tough to do. And there's a few things in this passage that this church commit themselves to that I think are instructive. Koinonia means a lot of different things. But a few of them are right here. One of them is Generosity. Look at this verse, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That's the same root word, by the way, as koinonia. It's the word koinos, common. They had everything in common. That doesn't mean they all like the same flavor ice cream. Okay? It doesn't mean they all like the same movies. What it means is to find in verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It's quite radical, hey? And there's such a shift when you... When you hear and read what people say these days about that verse, we just want to soften it. We just want to soften it so that we say, oh, well, that was them. But really now, let's just be nice to each other. But I can't do that with this text. There's no way of softening this. This kind of radical generosity is exactly what the church is called to. They were prepared to sell stuff, give stuff away. I'm not, personally, I'm not there. I can't look at this and see myself in this text, but there's something in me that, that longs to be that generous that longs for this type of community where we can just have equality, where those who have a lot are just prepared to give, to give, to give, to be generous people. And there's plenty of stories of this happening in big ways and small ways in our community, and you heard some of them through what Diane was saying, but just think about people that you know at the moment in our community for whom you could have a generous spirit. Maybe it is giving money. Maybe it's someone that you know in your life group, someone you just know inadvertently who is struggling right now, are you able to, to, to help them financially? My wife is way better at this than me. Honestly, this, is, this comes hard for me. I am, I am such a Scrooge by nature. 
Um, but she is so good. She prompts me, and, and, and most of the time she suggests, hey, you know, we could, maybe we could give a, a chair. I'm not trying to inflate myself or herself at all. I'm just telling you how it is in our family. So she'll kind of suggest an opportunity where maybe we could help someone or some people. And generally, at first, I'll be really defensive. Oh, you know, we can't do that. We don't have nearly enough money. How are we going to pay for this, that, and that? And I'm sure there's other people that will help them. And then generally what will happen, and she just knows, she just just waits it out now because she knows how I work. So then 24 hours will go past, I'll realize that I'm an idiot, and then I'll come back and say, actually, that's a really good idea. Let's see what we can do. I just need the time to percolate on it, whereas she's just there. But this is the stuff, you know, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it just comes harder for guys. But just being prepared to be generous people, and maybe you give anonymously, maybe you don't, but just to give. Because, man, when I do this, it enlarges my heart. It does something in my spirit, seriously, that just breaks me open and makes me realize what a strong grip I've got on my own finances and how ruthlessly I just cling on to them and and, and am so insecure about them and so unwilling to believe that God's actually got that in control. I don't really think I believe that at a core level. I might say it. When it comes to the crunch, I don't act like it. But what if we were just a little bit more willing to give? And you can do this in general. We have a relief fund in our church. It's a, it's a pool of money specifically to give away to people in our church who are struggling and more broadly in our community. It, it sustains itself purely on the basis of money given by us as a community. We don't put in from the church budget. It's just money that's given um, on top of. So even to put that on your radar as a way of contributing, maybe contributing regularly, maybe just a one-off, so that we can bless. But then more directly, as we know of people, as we hear of people, rather than waiting, well, Biffy will take care of that. Their life group will take care of that. I don't even know. I thought that was great what Diane said about, I, you know, had people shouldn't even know turning up at the... You don't have to know these people. Yeah, you might need an address to get the check to them, maybe. But you don't have to know them personally. This is what it means to have all things in common, to be koinonia, is that we are united at the foot of the cross, even if I don't know your last name. So we can be generous. And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if our church was marked by a spirit of generosity? You know, Paul said, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he's writing to his friends in Corinth, and he says, you excel in all these things in love and service and grace and faith. I pray that you would excel in the grace of giving. Just wonderfully poetic. Excel in the grace of giving. I think that's a next step for us as a church, to excel in this grace of giving to one another. Yes, we need to give generally to sustain the operations of the church, but giving to to one another. And maybe not just giving money, maybe giving stuff. Maybe there's things. Maybe giving time. Someone you know is moving, can you help? Someone needs transportation. Someone needs a babysitter. Someone needs some lawns mowed. Someone needs some housework done. Can you pitch in? Can you help? Can you be there for them? I know this takes us knowing needs and sharing needs, and we'll work on that, but just being willing, being open, being prepared, being generous. So this church was generous, and there's a second thing you find here. They they practiced hospitality. Verse 46, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They broke bread in their homes. The the whole uh, church service in these times, revolved around a meal. This is music to my ears. Fantastic. How many of you love the early church? They, they ate. They believed that eating was a sacrament. It was a means of grace. It was far more than just chewing a piece of steak. It was, it was koinonia. 
to have table fellowship. It's important to understand the New Testament, the weightiness of gathering together and sharing a meal far more than we place on it today. To have someone in your home was, was a profound thing. It was a sacred thing. And wouldn't it be great if we could recapture this? Just a spirit of hospitality in our church. Wouldn't it be great if every time a new person came into this gathering, they left here with at least one invitation to someone's house for lunch or dinner? And that might sound ridiculous. I don't even know how we'd pull that off. But wouldn't that be cool? Just one invitation to come for a meal, to be there, to be present in someone's home, and to break bread and have a meal together. This can be a sacred practice. We can be a community. Maybe you can commit yourself this year to regularly having people in your home or even at least going out to Wendy's, all right, but doing something, just eating. Eating is good. Eating is sacred, especially when you do it with other people. This is the idea, not just by yourself. But hospitality, to share a meal with members of this community once, twice a month, what, 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 what kind of commitment can you make? How often can, and not just the people you already know, not just all your own friends so you just perpetuate this social click, but people that you may not know well yet. We try and do this with dinners for eight, but that's just a catalyst. That's not the be-all. That just tries to spin this stuff so that it keeps spinning. But hospitality. We, Anna and I got an invitation late last year from a guy in this church. He said, can you be next Wednesday at this restaurant at this time? And we didn't know what was going on, what this was about. We turn up there, and this is a guy who had had a really tough year. Like, just, just really, really tough. And he had assembled around this table in the restaurant 12 people. We knew some of them, we didn't know others. Some friends, some family. These, he had identified 12 people that had walked with him through this year. And it just helped in various ways his journey of healing and recovery and restoration. And he, after dinner, just got up and just said a few kind words, gave us out each a bottle of wine. And just the power of that time, just of being around a table, just experiencing hospitality and just the warmth and the feeling of solidarity with one another. I sat next to someone I didn't know well. I'd met her once ages ago, but just there was a bond there. It was just this, yeah, this is so rich. This is so good. Why are we not doing this more? Why is this not what church is? This stuff can be so impersonal. This service stuff only works if we're committed to stuff beyond this, hospitality, being in each other's lives and homes and around each other's tables. So let's be hospitable people. It's part of koinonia. It's part of loving each other. And then here's a third value. They were an inclusive community. Inclusivity. I think it's implied from the passage. Maybe not there directly, but you've got to remember this is a church that grew by 3,000 people the night before. Three, seriously, 3,000 people. Instant megachurch. By any analysis, this church should have self-destructed within days. What was it that held them together? Yes, their confession of Christ, of course. Yes, the power of the Spirit. But I think there was an inclusivity. There must have been a willingness not just to stay in their own box, but to reach out and to draw each other in. People from many walks of life, people who had come to Jerusalem from many different countries, a very disparate group, but they were willing to be inclusive. They were willing to look out for others they didn't already know. I think this is possibly the hardest of the three things to practice the value of inclusivity, the value of being able to talk to people 
that we do not yet know. If I could identify one thing in this whole area of loving each other, that as a community here, Shaw Community Church, I think is the big next step for us and the greatest need, it is this, being prepared to talk to people we don't yet know. It might sound strange. You might think it's all the other stuff, all the serving and so on, but I think there's a more basic step of being prepared to have conversations so that we actually start to get to know each other. Because if all we do is stay in our own bubble and just talk to the little group that we already know and we're never prepared to walk across the room and talk to someone new, never prepared to shake a hand of someone that we don't know, we will remain largely fragmented as a church. And I feel a huge sense of helplessness with this because it's so critical, but I can't do it. I cannot do it. I mean, I can't do it all. I can talk to so many people, but this really is a step, if we believe in it, that we have to take together. And I know it's asking a lot of some of you who are raving introverts and find this really, really tough, but you may be surprised to know I'm an introvert as well. You say, come on, no, really, I am. I don't, I don't find this stuff easy. I'm not naturally a people person. Why on earth did I become a pastor? I don't know. I need some therapy. But I am. Uh, but, but, you know, I learn. I've learned. And I'm still learning a lot. But this is a step that we must be prepared to take. Because we've got to get to the point where every single person who comes into one of these services goes away and they turn to the person they came with or they say, in their own mind on the way home, what a friendly church. What a warm group of people. Those five people that talked to me this morning, that was amazing. And I know that when you're one of those people, you feel stupid and you feel awkward and you feel silly and, oh, I can't talk to them because I don't know them and what if they've been coming 10 years and what if they're an elder of the church and I don't even know? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it is, when you talk to people who have experienced this, a, a few people communicating with them, it is far more important that just somebody bothered than it is what they said, whether there was an awkward silence, pause, whatever. It just means so much that someone would say something, ask something, shake a hand, just be there, have a conversation. You cannot overestimate how important that is. So we have to be people that are prepared to do this. Before our services, after our services, when we have that little meet and greet time, that's not getting you off the hook. That's not, oh, well, I shake three hands, shook three hands, I'm done, you know. That's just a catalyst so that you can turn around after the service and go, now, let's have a conversation. Mums, when you're out in crèche and there's someone new that comes in and you don't know them, you be the one to talk to them. You be the one. I know that it's great to catch up on each other's weeks and there's people you haven't seen for a whole week. But here, there is a gift that we can use in this regard. It's a very important little tool, okay? My son is just learning this right now. It's called peripheral vision. It's a gift. See, it means that I can talk to you right now, but I can still see the cross. Isn't that amazing? I'm not being metaphorical. I can just literally see it right here. <laughs> I can see the cross. I can see that guy in the front row right there. You know, because I'm still talking to you. So here is the deal. You say, this is, so, this is a bit too basic, isn't it? Maybe, but I tell you, if we got this right, things would change around here. When you're in a conversation with someone, have the radar up. Have the antenna up to people who might be a little isolated, to people you don't know, to people, a family that might just be sitting by themselves awkwardly after church. It's tough because you know what generally people do when they're new visitors? They bolt for the door. 
I have had to run. It's a workout for me every week. It's how I keep fit. I've had to run to the car park to catch people before they leave just to say hello because you don't want to feel stupid and nervous if you're a visitor. And you know the great thing about this church? We've all been visitors. I've been a visitor in this church. That first Sunday, you remember it. Think about it. That first Sunday you turned up. Now, some of you knew a bunch of people already. Some of you didn't. But isn't it meaningful when people just take a moment and say hello, maybe leave a conversation they're in and just engage in a conversation with you? And even better, here's another little tool. If you're talking to someone and you notice someone over there who's sitting by themselves, take the person you're talking to with you. I've done this before, and they, you know, it's kind of surprising. You're talking to someone, hey, there's, there's a person over there I, I haven't met before. Should we go talk to them? Okay. So off you go, you talk to this person. Now, they know, now you've got three people in a conversation. You might even be able to leave, leave these two talking. <laughs> you can go talk to someone else. You see, you're on a mission now. You can get all these little conversations going. But we've just got to be prepared to get out of our little box sometimes, have the conversation. Yeah, I know you might run out of questions, but what's your name? Where are you from? Where, you know, you can do these things. This is easy. Use peripheral vision and just talk to one another. Just talk to one another. This is, I think this is where koinonia starts. You don't have to be super spiritual about it. Just talk to one another. And then things will start to move. Then we can start to talk about life groups, discipleship, caring for each other. But until we get past this basic level of just breaking down some social cliques and being a bit more cohesive as a community, that's, where we, that's what we're going to do. That's where we've got to get to. So we're going to practice this this morning. You know, I said last week, we're mixing it up on Sundays this year. We're doing new and crazy things. We're going to do a social experiment. Normally we have this time, one minute in the service to meet and greet. This morning we're going to extend it out. We're going to have several minutes where we're going to just talk to each other. Okay, Not praying for each other, not therapy, just, just talking. Just talk. But here, can I ask you this? Try and engage in some conversation, at least for part of this time, with someone that you don't yet know. I know some of you are already having heart palpitations, <laughs> but it's okay. Just breathe, breathe it in. We're just a permission. And the fact that we're talking about this in real time should put us at ease a little bit, okay? We're just doing this thing. It's just us. We're a church family. Come on, it's you and me. We just talk. But try talking to someone you don't know yet. Just have a conversation. Just have a conversation. And this is not the end of the service, not an excuse to take off, go get your kids and take off for lunch. We're going to come back and share communion after this. So if you miss this, you're really in trouble, right? That's why I put communion at the end. But we'll take communion, and it will hopefully be a communal time. But we're going to take several minutes. We're not going to rush this. Community time. So let's talk to one another. I'm going to pray, introduce this time, and then let's just go for it and see what happens. Father, we thank you for koinonia. We thank you for your church and for this value we've been talking about today of loving each other. God, we, we hear uh, Diane's story again and just we're reminded of the importance of loving each other and caring for each other in practical ways. We're reminded of the importance of being generous people and expressing our love through hospitality. And we're particularly reminded of the importance of being an inclusive community who really looks out for people who might be new, on the fringe, not connected yet, or just people that we don't know. And I pray you'd make us that, Lord. Break us out of our own familiarity. Break us out of our own just social patterns. And let us be a countercultural community who does things differently to every other social group on the planet that doesn't just act the same. Let us swim upstream from all that and model something different. 
We thank you that we are wired for this stuff, even though it doesn't come naturally. It is part of who you've made us to be. So we practice it now. In spite of the awkwardness and the difficulties, we practice it. We love you, and we ask for your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.